fellow A pushers and quarantines. See what I did there? I hope you're all doing well and are all enjoying this opportunity to experience extremely significant historical world events. I know I personally will never forget my own experiences during 9-11, and I still think back to how those events have changed our modern world. I also hope that you're taking time to find the good that is still out there in the world. I know that being constantly bombarded with heavy and often grim news can take a toll on us mentally and emotionally, but there's still quite a bit of good out there. For example, my wife and I have enjoyed seeing all the seemingly small milestones that Teddy is achieving on a constant basis. Side note, he's sitting up now. Whatever you find that gives you hope, please hold on to it. Above all, be safe. The focus of my podcast will be a look into U.S. history through a study of documents. In each episode, I hope to unlock meaning and historical significance from one document in American history. This week, I want to focus on the 1960s space race. With that introduction, let's launch into the first installment of Terp Talks Docs. April 12th, 1961 isn't generally a date many remember today outside of selective circles in the historical and space exploration communities. However, the single most significant event on that day sent the freshly minted Kennedy administration into a tailspin one that would lead to the U.S. racing from a position of desperately playing technological catch-up to, quite literally, vaulting itself so far ahead of the Soviet Union's technological reach that it would attain entirely new heights. What happened, you ask? The Soviet Union successfully launched a man, Yuri Gagarin, into orbit around the Earth. President Kennedy had just taken the oath of office barely four months prior, and within that short time span, the Soviet Union had not only beaten the U.S. in launching a man into space, but he also was still dealing with the fallout of the failed Bay of Pigs invasion. For as much as many Americans viewed Kennedy's time in the White House as Camelot, one cannot overlook the fact that his brief time as commander-in-chief was fraught with challenges. Americans looked to him for guidance and support in an era of heightened tensions between the world's first superpowers. With this in mind, and on the heels of those two catastrophic blows to his administration, he would choose to address both houses of Congress in a second State of the Union of sorts. The address was given on the 25th of May, 1961, and it would lay out his plan on a variety of topics that he viewed as essential areas that the government and everyday Americans would need to tackle immediately. The final and most memorable of the topics in his speech dealt with a lagging American space program and the new goal he would set for it to accomplish by the end of the decade, to land a man on the moon and see his safe return home to Earth. Our document this week is that very speech he gave before a special joint session of Congress in 1961. By the end of this episode, I hope to address two questions. The first, why is this document so significant? The second, what other reason, aside from the sheer novelty of landing on the moon, did Kennedy have for making this a goal by the end of the decade?
To better understand the significance of this document, we need to consider the broader view of what was happening in the world at the time. We know that the U.S. and USSR were locked into a bitter Cold War. Both sides possessed nuclear weapons and large arsenals that could be dispatched at the drop of a hat. The previous presidential administration under Dwight Eisenhower espoused massive retaliation as the official policy of self-defense of the U.S. and her allies. When Sputnik 1 was launched, it caught many Americans by surprise. Eisenhower and his staff were not among those people. They had knowledge that the Soviets were prepping to launch an artificial satellite into space, but Eisenhower seemed to feel any threat to the U.S. would be minimal as we would launch our own satellite not long after the launch of Sputnik 1. Remember that despite the idea of massive retaliation, Eisenhower cut defense spending by over $100 billion by the time he left office. Eisenhower was not interested in escalating tensions with the Soviets through defense spending. I'm sure at this point you're wondering, where is Mr. Turpin going with this? Think about this for a moment. What do you have to have in order to launch humans into space? The answer? Really big rockets. No matter how sophisticated your guidance system is, or how incredibly sweet the spaceship looks, unless you have incredibly powerful engines to push that super sweet-looking spaceship out of the almighty grip of Earth's gravity, you are going essentially nowhere. Well, okay, Mr. Turpin, but how does this relate to defense spending, and why does Kennedy care so much? Well, what else can you launch aside from human beings? Well... Nuclear warheads, I suppose. Ding, ding, circle gets the square. I am fully aware that reference to the game show Hollywood Squares probably went over many of your heads, but I'm sure you all understand the idea anyway. When Kennedy, and the rest of America for that matter, learned about Gagarin's successful orbit of the Earth, It was awe-inspiring while terrifying. The Soviets had rockets that could potentially be launched from the USSR to the American West Coast. What is even scarier is that we did not have that capability. Though Alan Shepard would be the first American in space just a month after Gagarin, Shepard's flight was merely suborbitable, which meant he went high enough to reach space But he didn't spend time orbiting Earth like Gagarin because the American rockets simply were not powerful enough. Think of it like doing a polar plunge. While Shepard could say he completed it by jumping in the water and then immediately jumping back out, Gagarin could say he jumped in and swam a full lap. Oh, and he did it first. When you take all of this into consideration, you immediately understand Kennedy's concern with a lack of progress of the U.S. space program. We were behind, and the Soviet Union knew it. Not only that, but everyone around the world knew it. The U.S. had no intention of fighting a traditional war against the Soviet Union. But in the Cold War era, both superpowers and their ideologies 
were jockeying for the hearts of developing nations worldwide. If our foreign policy was centered around the containment of communism and helping to spread freedom around the world, then trailing behind Soviet missile technology did not help bolster our claims to be the most advanced and greatest nation on Earth. That was our key argument for getting foreign nations, like Vietnam or others in Southeast Asia, for example, to follow our lead. We looked weak in comparison, and any nation looking to find help or for a model of what their nation should like seriously consider looking elsewhere. Kennedy says as much when he states, Finally, if we are to win the battle that is now going on around the world between freedom and tyranny, the dramatic achievements in space, which occurred in recent weeks, should have made clear to us all, as did the Sputnik in 1957, the impact of this adventure on the minds of men everywhere who are attempting to make a determination of which road they should take. When Kennedy delivers this speech and states his goals for the space program, he is setting in motion key American policy for the remainder of the decade. The United States would spend immense sums of money and exert itself in every possible area to surpass Soviet rocket technology. It would make us safer as a nation and more attractive to struggling foreign nations the world over. The second question, why the moon, is something that seems simple to understand on the surface. When Kennedy says, I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth, you have to shift your focus from the action of landing a man on the moon to what he says in the very next sentence when he states that no single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important for the long-range exploration of space, and none will be so difficult or expensive to accomplish. Space is where we can show the world how great this nation is. In landing on the moon, we can prove that we have the technical know-how to achieve this seemingly impossible task, and we have the financial capability of seeing it to completion. To drive his point home of the necessity of making it a priority of reaching the moon, he states that, while we cannot guarantee that we shall one day be first, we can guarantee that any failure to make this effort will make us last. In other words, if we fail to make space a real priority, like the previous administration, then we will certainly lose in the showcase of the minds that was space exploration during the period. There would be no other area where we could compete. Reaching the moon was the ultimate mic drop. We had to try. We could not afford to not try.
Another important aspect of the question is not really found in the document, but it very much can be inferred. We have established that this document is key to really getting the United States geared up for the space race in an official way. But something that goes overlooked is how the space race itself was a sort of safe space, pun intended, for the Americans and Soviets to compete against one another in a healthy way rather than fighting a war. Historians often refer to the Korean and Vietnam Wars as satellite wars for the U.S. and USSR. The two nations fought one another, but only indirectly in an official capacity. The U.S. supported South Korean and Vietnamese forces, while the USSR backed North Korea and communist forces in Vietnam. Both nations were competing against one another, but in a more traditional and terrible fashion. The space race allowed both nations to showcase their abilities and ideologies in a non-lethal way. Yes, as stated earlier, this all centers around building powerful rockets and what those rockets could potentially be capable of achieving, i.e. nuclear holocaust. However, if this were only the case, then it would have been enough for the U.S. to have launched men into space like Gagarin. Matching their might quickly would be enough. Yet, clearly setting the goal to put men on the moon was a way for America to raise the bar for technological achievement so high that the Soviet Union and the world would have no other response than to stand up and cheer this human accomplishment. Nations the world over would therefore look to the United States as a model of modern civilization. If Yuri Gagarin could say he was the first to do a polar plunge and then complete a lap, then just eight years later, Neil Armstrong, the first man to walk on the moon, could say he did the same. But while looking down at Gagarin from an entirely different celestial body. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this week in Terp Talks Docs. Stay safe, guys. Next week, we're going to tackle a document from the 1970s.